All right, let's get started. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back everybody to the School of Christi, the School of Christ. And uh, for the last couple of years, we've had the good fortune of reading Romano Guardini's Meditations Before Mass. And it was such a, a beautiful excursion, if you will, uh, through the liturgy and in particular, how it is that we participate in the mass. And so it was somewhat sad to, to leave off of Guardini after all that time, it was so beautiful. And, uh, but we picked somebody I think who could rival him, certainly in his writing, uh, St. John Henry Newman and his everyday meditations. And one of the reasons that uh, I chose to use this little book of meditations from Newman is that often Newman is thought of certainly as the great intellect of the 19th century, great philosopher, theologian, church historian, poet, uh, that often I think we lose sight perhaps of what it is that made him a saint. What went on within John Henry Newman himself? Was he all in his mind or was there something else that was sort of forming and shaping his heart? And it's really in his homilies and also in his meditations and devotions that you begin to begin to get a sense of who Newman is, how he viewed Christ, how he entered into that relationship with him. And these are some of the most beautiful, very simple, but beautiful meditations. And uh, I think going forward, we'll find them certainly value, valuable as we did the last one to carry us forward here throughout this coming year. And uh, our topic this evening is the mental sufferings of Christ. Already sort of a, uh, an interesting title for most of us. What is it that Christ himself experienced in and through the passion? What was going on in Christ's own mind and heart? How did he experience it? And how, we, how might we reflect upon it and not fall into heresy at the same time? And so I'll do my best up here. I'm not making any promises tonight how, how well we'll get through this. But as we begin this evening, uh, at the beginning of Newman's little book of meditations, there's a meditation before each of these talks for us to use. And so if you have the little booklet, it's over on the side table, if you like, uh, you can follow along. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. I place myself in the presence of him and in whose incarnate presence I am before I place myself there. I adore you, O oh my Savior, present here as God and man, in soul and body, in true flesh and blood. I acknowledge and confess that I kneel before the sacred humanity, which was conceived in Mary's womb, lay in Mary's bosom, which grew up to man's estate, and by the Sea of Galilee called the Twelve, wrought miracles and spoke words of wisdom and peace which in due season hung on the cross, lay in the tomb, rose from the dead, and now reigns in heaven. I praise and bless and give myself wholly to him, who is the true bread of my soul and my everlasting joy. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, last time we spoke about hope and the virtue of hope. And uh, this evening, as I mentioned, our topic is the, the mental sufferings of Christ. And uh, to be honest with you, this uh, one was a little bit more challenging to think about and meditate upon. And uh, both in preparing my, uh, as you see in the italicized print, my commentary to begin with, but also thinking about how might we frame 
this for us to be able to understand it with a greater clarity. Because what we are talking about is Christ's experience of the passion, uh, what he experienced uh, in terms of his human consciousness and divine consciousness. And what does that mean for us as, as human beings in terms of our reflection and meditation upon it? Uh, I think sometimes we have the sense of Christ suffering for three hours and the physical suffering on the cross and the mental suffering that went along with us, but we see it as something very limited to that period of time. And so even as Christian men and women, men and women of faith, we might see this as redemptive, but we also might see it as something that is very uh, limited in, in terms of time. And as, as if Christ were simply one criminal crucified or put to death as any other. And uh, certainly the, the death of, of Christ carries within it uh, something far more for us and far more meaning. And that's what I want to be able to talk with you about here this evening. And, uh, and as part of my supplemental reading and preparation for this, I, I took two works that I'd like to recommend to you. The first is by a little known writer, perhaps, uh, maybe some of you have heard of her, Adrienne von Speyer. Uh, she was a friend of uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who was a great theologian uh, of the last century, and uh, that he was her spiritual director. And she's written some really wonderful works, in particular her commentary on John. But she also wrote a book called The Passion from Within. And immediately the title of this intrigued me. What, what was the experience of the passion like for Christ at each of the steps uh, that he went through in terms of his experience of those who arrested him, uh, those who then scourged him, but also his experience of his own apostles uh, or the institution of the Holy Eucharist, uh, participating in the Eucharist and giving them the Holy Eucharist while knowing that one would betray him in particular and the rest would all abandon, abandon him. And so some of my supplemental reading for, for this group came from this. The other is from a Benedictine monk at St. Vincent uh, Monastery named Thomas Acklin. And uh, about maybe 15 years ago, he wrote a work called The Passion of the Lamb, for those of you who are joining us via Zoom. And it's, you know, it's, I know Tom very well and the depth of his prayer life. And the book is written as, like a prolonged meditation upon the passion itself. You won't find any footnotes in it. And, but it's one of the most beautiful things I've read about the passion. And he captures some things for us about what might've been going on within the mind and the heart of Christ. Uh, Tom is also a psychoanalyst. And so I think psychologically, he's able to help us th think about what would that experience be internally for him and how we, we might understand it from our perspective. And, and so in particular, the, the chapter Behold His Face, chapter 10, if you happen to have the book, is where I, I drew uh, some of my thoughts here to preface the group. And in particular, his little section on the infinite passion. And this is what I found most striking and how I'd like to frame the group for us a little bit. Uh, God in the incarnation comes to us uh, in, in a kind of uh, weakness and humility. And this compels us when we slow ourselves down and think about it to uh, 
review our understanding of God, who we believe God to be, what we believe his qualities are. And he comes to us in the midst of our created order and enters into it fully. And this tells us something about him. Uh, where we go wrong, I think, is that we often think about God in terms of power. And it's much more difficult for us to think about God in terms of vulnerability and in terms of, of love. And so we have to be willing to have our understanding of God be corrected, I think, both through Newman's meditation, but also some of our discussion about it here tonight, uh, and even revolutionized. And I think the gospel for this weekend will also be a good thing for people who meditate upon in this, in this way as well. It's the Beatitudes, that these, what Christ puts before us is a kind of self-portrait. In, in the Beatitudes that revolutionizes our understanding of what it is to be a human being, how it is to love and give ourselves in love, uh, but also how God comes to us, uh, that uh, what he reveals in his teaching is also a reflection of what is within his own heart and part of his own qualities as God. And so we, we have to learn to think of God through Christ and in particular through the cross. So in our meditations, the cross, the passion is always going to be there. And it also has to have an effect upon the way that we understand God as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not as though the, fa the Father and the Spirit are not present in the passion of Christ. It's not how we think of God. It's not how we think of the Holy, Holy, Holy Trinity that they are all present within all the events of, of Christ's life, including the passion. And so what we understand of Christ, we also understand of, of the Holy Trinity. And this is where I think we are going to have to stretch ourselves, not intellectually, but in and through the gift of faith to allow God to draw us into the mystery. And uh, if you've come to some of our other groups here at the oratory, uh, you'll remember that St. Isaac the Syrian said that knowledge of the cross comes through the cross. So it comes not through thinking about it. It comes through our willingness to participate in the cross in our day-to-day -day life, our willingness and faith to take hold of the crosses that come into our life and embrace them with love and faith, to understand that we are participating in the redemptive work of Christ. And this is how we come to understand why God reveals himself in this way, what, what the meaning of the cross is. So you could have the most brilliant of theologians write all that they could possibly write about the passion of Christ, about the cross, and it would not make a dent in terms of capturing the meaning of that reality for us. We have this tendency to place a lot of weight on what is notional or intellectual, our capacity to reason through things. But here we are talking about comprehending the very mystery of the infinite God through the gift of faith. If you remember from past groups, we talked about faith as a kind of knowing, a comprehending. Uh, John of the Cross describes it as a dark, obscure knowing, but nonetheless, God draws us in to this relationship with him in order to reveal his heart to us. And he's revealed himself in a, in a very definite way and complete and perfect way in his only begotten son. And so again, this is part of how we have to begin to, to frame things 
including, again, our vision of the triune God. And one of the things one of these authors said is that Christ's whole life is a passion. And so we think of the passion as a certain moment in, in Christ's life and ministry, the final week, the final days of, the, of his life, and then in particular, Good Friday. But really, as men and women of faith, we are to see the passion is really a quality of, of God himself and of Christ himself. And this takes us back to the incarnation, that one of the things that we're going to be exploring tonight is the nature of God's love. It's often been called canonic love, self-emptying love. And so part of God's love is to pour himself out, and creation is a manifestation of that reality, that God creates us. And he does even more than that. He creates us in his image and likeness. And so in doing this, this irreversibly makes God committed to us as his creation. And again, created in his image and likeness. So God in creating us is committing us to committing himself to be with us throughout our whole history as, as the human race and to, to strengthen and guide us along the path that he's destined for us. And as we discover in, in Christ that that destiny that we have in Christ is eternal life, a participation in the very life of the Holy Trinity. And this begins for us, not only at the incarnation, but it really begins all the way back at our creation itself. God commits himself to us in this fashion. And so in, from eternity, the nature of God's love holds within it the idea of a self-emptying Messiah, a Messiah who will pour himself out in love for his creation, for us, and for each of us as individuals. And so it compels us to let go, I think, of a kind of linear view of history that we have and a linear view of Christ's own life to consider Christ's suffering and death on the cross as part of the very nature of the love of God that leads him to create us. And this is an extraordinary thing, that God's love from all eternity has in mind to create us in order to live in this eternal relationship of love with him to draw us into his own love this is why he creates us in his image and likeness and he is willing to do whatever is necessary including enter in, into the very poverty of that humanity that creation in order to re redeem us and so it compels us to look at god's love as something as more than just this one moment in time and his love for us as just our within the context of our life. That God's love for us as individuals exists within eternity because God is eternal. So it's, it's not that God only knows us from the moment that we're in the womb. God in love knows us from all eternity itself and has in his mind and his will to create us. It's an extraordinary thing if you think about it that it, it doesn't make God sort of this uh, standoffish uh, being, you know, who creates us and simply lets us go on our way. 
sort of like the clock maker image, you know, wind it up and let it, let it go. That God is very much involved uh, and not just at certain moments, but at every single moment, stretching all the way back into eternity itself. And uh, the other thing I think we'll be grappling with here this evening is a, a God who is great enough to be humble, to humble himself. That God is often seen as impassable, that this is part of his quality, that unchangeable, unmovable. And what we see revealed in Christ is something far different. And this is something that we're going to have to struggle with because this has been seen as a fundamental quality of God, that a part of his eternal nature is that he does not change, he cannot be moved by others, that he's, there's a kind of perfect freedom there. But how, how do we understand that? Do we, again, understand it in such a way that we see God as distant from us? Or do we see God immersed in our life in, again, the most intimate way? And so Tom Acklin in his book, this is where I, I think he really shines. He said, we, we are very comfortable in speaking of God as omni in many different ways, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing. And he says, we're much less comfortable of thinking of God as omni-canotic. So infinitely self-emptying love. This is where we, we get, get hung up because this means that God is omnivulnerable, that God's, the very nature of God's love is to open his heart to us. And that's part of our experience of loving as human beings. To love is to be vulnerable. It's, it had, carries within it the capacity to be wounded that that love would not be reciprocated and that would not be returned to us. And so the extraordinary thing that we are saying about God is that he's, again, a, a perfect, infinite outpouring of love, but also a perfect vulnerability in that love, that God doesn't say to us, I'm going to love you up to this point, but no more. God is going to give himself to us without, without measure, without condition. And so he says, Jesus suffered the passion throughout his life. And he says, try to imagine the passion of an infinite being. He suffered the suffering of all. So try to imagine the, the, the passion of an infinite being. What would, we look, what would that look like? We know periods in our life where we carry crosses or we, where we go through difficult times or where we are called to pour ourselves out in love for other, others. But how, how is it that we imagine, even aided by the gift of faith, a God that is infinitely passionate, infinitely uh, self-empty, infinitely vulnerable before us? And so he says, he could see not only people standing before him jeering and weeping, but all people of all time. He saw us in our loving and our refusing to love. And again, this is, is something that is sort of eye-opening for us. The God sees all of our suffering, every single bit of it, and he's in the midst of it, experiencing it for himself, 
the pain even of our sin, of our turning away from God, the emptiness that brings, but also all the hardship, the suffering that we endure on a physical, emotional, and spiritual level. He sees all of this. He also sees every way that we turn away from him in sin and refuse that love and refuse and the way that we refuse that love. And so again, it pulls us away from the, seeing the passion as this moment in time where Christ is crucified by the Romans and put to death to seeing uh, this self-emptying love as touching every aspect of history, every aspect of creation, reaching back to eternity, to the mind and the heart of God himself, but also reaching into every single experience that we have as human beings, past and, and future for us, present for us, but also for every individual that was and is to come. This is everything that Christ bore on the cross. And so it's not simply the physical sufferings and the emotional sufferings that went along with being pinned to the cross. It's also carrying within his mind and heart all of our experience of suffering and that's the suffering that sin brought in to the world. And so before we go in to Newman's meditation, uh, it's, I think it's important for us to be able to frame our, our discussion in, in light of this, that he saw our refusal of divine love. And in the same way that he saw it in uh, his own apostles, you know, he sees Judas making this movement away from him, uh, going to the Pharisees to, you know, willing to betray him for, you know, 70 pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver, sorry about that. And he sees the, the denial of Peter as well. And, but more than that, he, he sees it within us on a day-to-day -day basis, even in, the, even in the most subtle ways where, we refuse that love when Christ calls himself, calls us to himself in prayer, or when he calls us to, to engage another in love and mercy, to step out of ourselves and engage them in whatever we can. So every time that we turn away from another and we become self-absorbed, focused upon the ego, what's important to us, we are, are also turning away from Christ, that we can no longer look at each other in the same way, knowing that Christ is immersed within the individual before us. We have to see them as if, as if we would, are seeing Christ, Christ as well. Any comments so far on some of these thoughts? I know it's a, that was a lot to throw at you, but uh, if we can hold one thing in mind, I think it is uh, Ackland's vision of this omnivulnerable God. And, you know, I think it would be worthwhile. It's just a paragraph for so long, and he puts it so well. So if you just give me a moment, uh, I, I don't want to diminish what he says. It might help us to understand the passion of the divine son if we remember what we have said earlier, that while God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and all the other omnis, he is infinite, self-emptying love. We can say that he is omnicanotic omnivulnerable. Here we are really talking about not only what Jesus suffered in his passion and death on the cross, 
but the passion with which he entered into the incarnation and with which he lived his whole life. Was he affected as the son of God by our sins, by the condition of those whom he met? Or was he somehow impassable? If the latter, he is without passion, not only in a human sense, but also in an analogous divine sense. How can we think of or imagine anything like divine concern or care? In fact, a God without passion, in some analogous sense to ours, a God who is unaffected or unconcerned, who doesn't care, would be a monster. And I remember being jarred when I first read that, because I think so often our vision of God, when it lacks the sense of him uh, identifying with our suffering on such a deep level, then he can seem very distant to us, but he can also seem like enemy, judge, one who's feared, and as one who will ultimately reject us, rather than one who is always drawing himself towards us and emptying self, himself out in love on our behalf. We cannot attribute to God human qualities that are sheer deficiencies, such as sinfulness, hatred, ignorance, or illness. We can, however, attribute to him an infinite perfect way of good qualities that we have in a finite and even a deficient way. I would propose that rather than being impassable, incapable of feeling or having passion as we human beings do, it would be more accurate to say that not only Christ, but all three divine persons are infinitely concerned, infinitely caring, infinitely affected by us, omnipassable, if you will. God loves infinitely pouring himself out infinitely and never being in the least exhausted by this, infinitely vulnerable and affected by everything without the least being diminished by it. This is how the three divine persons love perfectly in their oneness. This is how God has loved and redeemed us through the incarnation, passion, and death of his son. So the very essence of God and the very essence of that love as expressed within the Holy Trinity is this outpouring of love between the persons of the Holy Trinity. And so what Acklin is saying that it's part of the very nature of God to love in this way, that we, we feel in our minds that we're protecting something about the identity of God by making him this distant figure unaffected by the things that go on in our daily life. And he says, this is something that is obscuring what has been revealed to us in Christ and in the cross. That God is actually omnipassable, deeply affected by what happens to those that he has created in love. And so far from seeing him as distant, we should see him deeply immersed in what we go through. This is why he weeps at the, the tomb of his friend Lazarus why he shakes, his whole body trembles when he gazes out of the crowd and they seem like lambs that have been abandoned by their, their shepherds and so slaughtered by wolves. You know, that he is not this, again, this distant character, unaffected as we often will make him. And I think on a psychological level, we, we, and we might do this for a reason. Because on some level, keeping God at a distance can seem more comfortable to us, as strangely as that might seem. 
to think of a God that is intimately involved in every thought, every care we have, every sorrow that we've had, every failure that we've experienced, every time we've rejected love can be a terrifying thing. To have a God that is omnivulnerable and we, if we are created in his image and likeness, what does that mean for us? And the way that we engage him, but also that we engage others. Does that mean we are to be omnivulnerable as well? To pour ourselves out in the same way, to be open to one another and seek what is best for the other, no matter what the cost, like our God. And so we, we, want, we will turn God into this very distant figure so that we can avoid having to live our lives in that way. But in doing so, we prevent ourselves from experiencing intimacy beyond imagination. We prevent ourselves from experiencing the love that God desires to give us. And so, I don't want to pretend here as though I'm presenting something to you that arises out of the deepest tradition. I think it's pretty hard to find some things. I've, some of the earliest writings that I found that express it in this way would be St. Isaac the Syrian. And this has only been translated into English for us in the last 20 years. But he's the only one who speaks of divine love in this way and with this, this same kind of beauty. And so, you know, we don't want to fall into a kind of heresy. You know, there was a heresy in the early church called Docetism, where Christ simply assumes our humanity for a period of time. You know, he takes it on in order to be able to engage us, but on a certain level rises above that the limitations or the experience of the poverty and the suffering of that. And, uh, or ha always has this clear vision that despite of what he's going to go through, there ultimately will be resurrection. You know, not having to deal with any experience of not knowing or distance from the Father. And yet we hear on the cross, Christ say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When all the time up to the, the passion, it had been, he had been speaking of greatest intimacy with his Father. And suddenly on the cross, it's crying out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Where, where are you? So why don't we move on to Newman's reflection and, uh, and then we can unpack it from there, okay? Any comments or questions so far? Yes. Right. 
Well, it's a good point. And I think even, you know, I'd say probably for all of us, but for many Christians, the cross remains a stumbling block. That, uh, you know, we can believe in this idea of a, of a loving God, but when the, the cross emerges in our own life, we feel that God is cruel or that God has abandoned us in some way that he's absent and he's left us to go through this on our own. Uh, we can't see him present. Whereas I think what Newman will be showing us and what we've read from Tom Acklin here is that far from our suffering in isolation, there's not one bit of suffering that we endure alone. The God has already embraced it. God is in it and has experienced it with the intensity of an infinite love, an infinite mercy. One who knows every, all the quality of that cross that we've borne in its, in its deepest measure, who's plumbed the depths of it and knows it well. So let's move on uh, to our text itself. In this brief minute, oh yes, okay, go ahead. I just had one question, what a comment that you made about uh, that uh, we try to put God as somebody distant so we can avoid the sovereignty of God. But God is infinite, but finite beings, and we speak with patience, there's only so much we can do many times. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's we have to find balance, right? And we have to take care of ourselves uh, as well when we're trying to at the same time to go to others. I mean, we're not God, so we, we don't have this infinite story. Right. But we don't look at our actions or our love of others abstracted from the God who dwells within us. The reality is, is that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so the, the same spirit of love, the infinite spirit of love that plums the depths of God, we hear in the scriptures, plums our depths and also gives us the strength to love in the way that God has called us to love. And, you know, I think all of us have to look at the context of our life and, and how God is calling us to do that so that it is not indiscriminate or imprudent or in accord with the reality of our experience. But I think what we are being invited to here is to be able to see ourselves as more than human. Uh, you know, when we fall into sin, often one of the things that we will say to ourselves, well, I'm only human, you know, from what I've done. And we'll use that as a, a way of sort of rationalizing what we've done. And, what, you know, I'm not being critical of that. I understand why, why we do that. But we're not only human. You know, the moment that Christ embraces our humanity, our understanding of what it is to be human is transformed. We no, no longer simply understand ourselves as made in the image and likeness of God, but that our God took upon himself our humanity in order to reveal to us who we are as human beings in relationship to God and what it is to live uh, as human beings, now that we live in this radical union and communion with God through what Christ has done for us on the cross in terms of redeeming us from that sin, but also by the grace that he gives us through the outpouring of his spirit 
through the gift of the Holy Eucharist, through the grace of confession, that we are raised up to participate even now in the eternal life and love of God. And so our capacity to love uh, is always to be guided by the standard who is Christ. That love for us is forever marked by the cross. That love for us should always be seen through the lens of the cross. So love is cruciform, it's self-emptying. And so our tendency will always to be to go back to place limits for one reason or another. And again, I, I get that. You know, part of it is our, our limitation, our woundedness, where we are spiritually, where we are emotionally. And God might have to heal us or strengthen our faith, give us that capacity and call us along the particular path that he desires for us. The ultimate end is to share in that in its fullness. But even now, we are called to participate in that in a radical way. And so as, as Christian men and women in the world, there, there should be something distinctive that people see about us, a distinctive ethic a distinctive way that we love each other, a distinctive way that we deal with things like vi violence, war, you know, all the things that go on in the world, there be, should be something that shapes and guides the way we think about it and the way that we enter into it. I think perhaps the most powerful uh, image for us in our generation was Mother Teresa, you know, that, and it's not as though she knew that perfection immediately, that there is throughout this course of time, God, you know, drawing her through his grace in order to offer herself in a greater and greater measure. To step into the gutters of Calcutta and pick up people who were dying, who, you know, were, their flesh were rotting, to be with them all the way through the moment of their death so that they would never be isolated in, that, in their experience of suffering. And so in a profound way, she was configured to Christ. And she came you know, to ex express and I think embody something of the joy of that love for the kingdom, even though internally she experienced something of a darkness. So I get what you're saying that, you know, we don't think about this outside of the context of our experience as human beings because uh, God acts within that reality of our personal history. But nonetheless, he acts in order to heal and elevate, to give us, to call, and to call us to something far greater. And I think we often labor, you know, especially around Easter time, I think about this, you know, in terms of how many, uh, even as men and women of faith, labor as if the stone still seals the tomb that in reality, they are damned. You know, that it's hard to believe that God could forgive or love them in such a way. And so despite having faith, they can labor with this sense that ultimately God is going to, to judge them and disregard them. And so, you know, part of the Easter message is not only that Christ has, that the tomb could not hold Christ, but that the tomb has been opened for us and that we are beckoned to come forth with him. 
And part of what's beautiful about our tradition as Christian men and women is the, what we see in the Apostles' Creed, Christ descends into hell. Now the gates of hell cannot prevail against he who is light. And so he enters into hell and the iconography surrounding that is extraordinary. Christ taking Adam by the arm, offering redemption to those who die prior to the Paschal mystery. And, and, you know, I think part of our struggle is, is to believe that. And the only way we believe it by, is by allowing ourselves to enter into it. And allowing, I think, in a sense, our, our, our faith to take us where intellect and reason can't possibly take us. The, what I'm talking about here, I think, only comes through the deepening of our faith for our, uh, from our participation in that life and love through the sacraments, where we are drawn into it and we experience it, not in an abstract way, but in the most concrete and tangible way. To actually hear the words, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. You know, to hear those words for ourselves, to receive into our very being the life and the love of our God. And it's by entering into that over and over again that our, our confidence in that reality, our hope and the promises made to us becomes deeper. But let's see where Newman takes us here and we'll open it back up. Any questions from the peanut gallery there on Zoom? No? Okay. <laughs> now this is the red print is uh, just my little introduction. In this brief meditation, Newman draws us into the mind and heart of Christ as our Lord enters his passion. In his embrace of our humanity, Christ also embraces the mental anguish and darkness of the poverty of our sin. He freely surrenders to his fate in loving obedience. Satan seizes his opportunity and Christ is afflicted not only with the weight of impending death, that he has foretold all along, but with the betrayal of love by those closest to him. The evil one darkens the hearts of all his apostles, making them murmur amongst themselves about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They maneuver for position, not realizing that they are being manipulated by the great father of lies. One directly betrays him, but all with their egos heavily weighted with pride, would begin to abandon him and his time of need. And so Newman here is telling us there is this moment where we see this shift, this giving of freedom over to the evil one in order that he might embrace that poverty of our humility, that he might take it upon himself. And immediately he's afflicted and the apostles are, uh, uh, he's afflicted by the betrayal of love and the apostles are misguided by, by the father of lies. One alone stands among them who sees the Lord's anguish and seeks to soothe it. In a lavish gesture, she pours out her precious ointment, both soothing his brow and pointing the, to the incomprehensible love that will allow itself to be broken and poured out upon the cross. Yet this tender moment is interrupted by harsh and piercing words of the traitor who can only see such love and generosity as a waste. Mercy 
would not have extended to him even the smallest act of tenderness. The master is rebuked by the disciple. And so Newman right, will write about this beautifully. And we, in the gospel, it's expressed beautifully as well. Uh, I think we've mentioned in past groups that Christ his, himself says that what this woman has done will be remembered forever wherever the gospel is proclaimed. That her anointing him, preparing him for death by breaking this, uh, this jar of ointment, of perfumed oil over him, uh, was a way of anointing him for death. And so, but it was also a reflection of this divine love that will be manifested on the cross. In the same way that she crushes and breaks this jar of precious ointment and that it pours out over Christ and the smell of it fills the air, we will see that take place on the cross where Christ will allow himself to be broken and poured out fully for the, for the love of the world until he breathes his last and breathes the spirit out upon the church. And, and so Newman chooses this one episode, I think to, to show us the, the, certainly the comfort of that love, but also the, the darkness that Christ moves into further and further, that even in this moment, this passing moment when he is being soothed by the one person who understands or has a glimpse of what he's about to experience, it's interrupted by Judas of all people, who we hear stole, he was the, uh, in charge of the money bag and that he stole money and eventually betrays Christ, that he's the one who objects, why this waste when this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. So Christ is about to give everything, pour out this infinite love upon the world. And Judas, who is a crook, was complaining that this was a waste of, of something. He could not see for a moment. We see how blind he had become in the darkness of his sin uh, to the love of Christ, but even the love that was being shown for him in this moment. It's a sad truth that those closest to Christ frequently betray him the most. The ingratitude of those called friends always pierces the deepest. Such ingratitude, Newman tells us, is a daily occurrence and Christ who has taken on our humanity feels it in its fullness. We who slake our thirst for love take up the chalice of his blood and likewise receive his body often with no greater consciousness of the full measure of malice, we return simply by our indifference. And so Newman takes us here perhaps where we don't want to go. And it's seeing ourselves reflected in something of the action of the apostles, but also of the betrayer himself. That the, the moment that we take what we receive at the altar for granted, or the moments that we receive it with a kind of indifference, that there is a similar kind of malice in that, that we are even, we're receiving it in a presumptuous way and we are, are not discerning the costs by which it has come to us. And Paul warns about this in his letters, if you remember, if we eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, we eat and drink to our own condemnation. 
that we are sinning against love at that point and sinning against it in a malicious way. A love that is, again, omnivulnerable, that does not seek to protect itself at all. And think about it. Christ has made himself the, the, the least intimidating that he could possibly be for us. He's made himself a piece of bread, a host, completely non-threatening. And yet we could receive that not in a spirit of gratitude, but rather in a spirit of malice. I mean, I could tell you multiple stories of priests who are horrified to find a host floating in the holy water font or in a corner of the, of the church. And, uh, you know, just sort of cast aside or, or treated improperly by those who have been given the care of distributing communion. And, uh, and so it's not an uncommon thing and not as uncommon as we uh, would like to think. And I put this before you not to instill a kind of, of, of guilt or shame, but I think Newman's writing, and I think what I would be trying to say is, is that we want to heighten our understanding of the nature of this love. And we want to sensitize our conscience in, in, the ter in terms of how it is that we receive that love from Christ, that we don't take it for granted, and that we don't approach the, the Holy Eucharist in a consumeristic kind of fashion, or you know, as, as though we're going up and sort of taking it, plucking it for ourselves. I, I've mentioned before that you know, we we're supposed to receive the Holy Eucharist by making a throne out of our hands, or we, we receive it by having it placed upon our, our tongue. It's not something that is to be grasped at as if belonging to us or owed to us. We always receive in this humble fashion. And it's been an odd kind of thing, I think, in modern days that there's been a lot of consternation about how people receive, especially if they show too much reverence. If we truly understood the Eucharist and the love that we, we receive there, we would want to do a full prostration before receiving, let alone kneel down to receive receive the Lord. And I think this is what Newman is trying to heighten for us, is that the, the sense of the, the nature of the love that we are receiving. Okay, so to Newman himself. After all his discourses were consummated, fully finished and brought to an end, he said, the son of man will be betrayed to crucifixion. As an army puts itself in battle array, as sailors before an action clear the decks, as dying men make their will and then turn to God, so through our Lord, though our Lord could never cease to speak good words, did he sum up and complete his teaching and then commence his passion. Then he removed by his own act the prohibition that kept Satan from him and opened the door to the agitations of his human heart as a soldier who is to suffer death may drop his handkerchief himself. That once Satan came on and seized upon his brief hour. So we hear Christ, especially in, in the Gospel of John, speak about his hour and that he freely chooses to take this path on our, our behalf. And Yet there is this moment, Newman is telling us, where the teaching ceases and the most profound revelation 
is to be made. And we see the perfection of love and come to understand it not through the teachings of Christ, but through the cross itself. And so the most that Christ could do in his preaching and teaching is to try to prepare them for this. In a similar way that John tried to prepare them to receive the Savior by calling them to repentance. So Christ begins in the same way, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, that we would do everything in our power to turn toward God in order to be able to receive our Savior. And he could spend three years preparing the group that would continue this labor within the world, but it would only be on the other side of the cross that they would be able to interpret everything that he had said to them. And it would only be by being strengthened by the gift of the Holy Spirit that they could live it, not in a natural heroic way like a soldier would even facing death on the battlefield, but they, they would be able to act with a divine love that would even elevate them above the fear and anxiety uh, of death itself. Peter, we know, you know, the one who denied him three times perfectly, I do not know the man, eventually is himself crucified upside down. And so we see that the power of the spirit, Peter, fearful and timid after the resurrection, preaches to 3,000 people and with a kind of fearlessness and, and holy boldness that uh, can only be seen as the action of, of God's grace within him. But prior to this time, Newman is telling us that in accord with Christ's own will, and as he comes to that moment, he allows Satan to, to do what he will to have his dark hour, which he seizes upon. Newman describes it this way, an evil tempter of murmuring and criticism is spread among the disciples. One was the source of it, but it seems that to have been spread, the thought of his death was before him and he was thinking of it and his burial after it. A woman came and anointed his sacred head, the action spreading a soothing, tender feeling over his pure soul. It was a mute token of sympathy, and the whole house was filled with it. It was rudely broken by the harsh voice of the traitor, now for the first time giving utterance to the secret heartlessness and malice. To what purpose is this waste? The unjust steward with his impious economy, making up for his own private thefts by grudging honor to his master. Thus in the midst of the sweet calm harmony of that feast at Bethany, there comes a jar and discord. All is wrong, sour discontent and distrust are spreading for the devil is abroad. And so there are a number of things certainly that this speaks to us about. Certainly, uh, murmuring and criticism uh, that we see it right from the, the beginning and how quickly it infects even the apostles and it takes root so deeply that they begin to murmur and criticize each other. And then we see in the case of Judas, as I've mentioned, you know, taking it upon himself to rebuke the Lord for what had just taken place in this moment that was 
uh, soothing to him. And so I think as, as we look at this in our, our own lives, the, and you know, often we see within the life of the church, especially when things become sort of chaotic, and when we see and we know the presence of evil has been active and dismantling things, even things that are precious to us, very quickly, a spirit of murmuring and criticism can enter into the church. And the father of lies can take a hold of that, partial truths, and he can tear, as he did with the apostles, to tear them apart. You know, they begin fighting with each other about who would have position within the kingdom. And eventually it tears them uh, apart spiritually so that they, they deny and betray the Lord, all of them, not just, just the one. And I, I think we see, you know, if we're honest, when we look around the church, there are a lot of voices that are speaking truths that they believe, probably like Judas believed, uh, you know, are important. You know, wh why this waste? Why is this waste taking, taking place? And what that would be for us in our generation might be something different from what, how Judas saw it. But it could be, you know, this waste involved in really the church spending itself in the way that it needs for those in its care. And I think maybe the pandemic uh, is probably the most perfect and powerful example of this. It threw the church into confusion. And there were all these voices coming from the world about what was going on. And some, some of the things true, you know, based upon science, followed the science, but certainly as Christian men and women, this is not the, all that we see about reality uh, in terms of how we respond to even something like a pandemic. What is the response of a church in the face of a pandemic and when tens of thousands of people are dying? And what should it have been in that moment? You know, does fear overwhelm? Does it seem too costly for the church to be immersed in the, the suffering and the sickness of its own people, to give them what is most important in the, those moments, up to the point of, of death itself? Is it too, too frightening, too, fear, too fearful, too costly to, to enter into that and to make the sacrifices necessary? I don't think there were priests absent the willingness to do that. But I, I think the, the church was driven more by fear and anxiety at that point. And again, I don't wanna be critical myself here because I understand it. We were faced with something that we, we did not know and we did not know how great it was, how threatening it was. But it was also a time where people needed to be strengthened in their faith and comforted, and comforted not through words, uh, but comforted through what was divine, through the sacraments themselves. And to be able to sit in the presence of the Lord, to be able to receive the Holy Eucharist, to be able to receive confession. We've talked about this before. I've never seen so much joy when people were able to come back to confession. We had to hear them outside and in the rain and in the snow, but there wasn't one confession I heard in those first weeks where people didn't say, 
at the end, thank you, Father, for being here. And even when I'd say, don't kneel down in that water puddle, they would, they would still do it. And, uh, and so you could see there what was needed and you can begin to discern what would have been the will of God in terms of this self-emptying love. What was cruciform love? Because it becomes very confusing there. You know, one can say, well, the greater love is to mask up and to lock down. And that might be, this, that might be true for the majority of, of people. But, you know, what, what is the responsibility of the church of ent entering into the sorrows and the sufferings of those during a pandemic and during a plague? Now, the, we have examples of it from the past. It's not that we have to look and search very far to find how the church responded to it in different ages. And yet, I think we can be so ego-driven in our own time that we can be fearful and want to protect ourselves. So, so rather than imitating Christ in this omni-vulnerability and pouring, being willing to pour ourselves out in love. And that's, that's the extreme example. I think even in our day-to-day -day life, we're asked even for less, you know, in terms of this willingness to show kindness and generosity and that love towards others. And there are so many ways that we, we pour into ourselves in a protective measure. You know, if, if I give my time here, then I'm not going to be able to do my work, my study to the things that I, I want to do. Or if I spend this time in prayer with the Lord, then I'm not going to be able to do these other things that are pressing upon me or that seem so important to me. So what we see going on here with the apostles, the discontent, the distrust is not something foreign to us. And I think it touches upon our life every single day. Judas, having once shown what he was, lost no time in carrying out his malice. He went to the chief priests and bargained with them to betray his Lord for a price. Our Lord saw all that took place within him. He saw Satan knocking at his heart and admitted there and made an honored and beloved guest and an, and, and an intimate he saw him go to the priest and heard the conversations between them. He had seen it by his foreknowledge all the time. Judas had been about him and when he chose him. And so Christ could see, certainly in his divine consciousness, the nature of the betrayal, or at least the capacity for that betrayal. And yet we see him reach out to Judas. We see him put him in a certain position, choosing him among the 12. Uh, having him hold the money of, of the community. He sends him out to preach the gospel with the, the apostles when they first began their mission. So he entrusts him. You know, Judas was one, of, one among those who healed people. And uh, all the things that he sends them out saying that they will be impervious to the bites of serpents and all, the, all these things that we see active in the apostles. And they, they come back rejoicing over it. They have power over Satan himself. Judas was a part of that, having received the, the grace and the love of our, of our Lord. And yet here, the darkness had taken over so deeply 
that he could no longer see and remember this. And yet what we see in Christ and then through all this is this omnibonability that despite the, the possibility of Judas's uh, betrayal, that he loves him. And in the same way that he loves Peter, who denied him equally, Peter was able to receive the, the mercy and forgiveness. Judas was not. It had become so overcome by the darkness and the darkness of a kind of ego, egoism at that point that he, he kills himself as a response to that, that his sin even becomes greater than the mercy of God. So his capacity uh, to comprehend an all-loving God is lost that part at that point. That's how deep the darkness had become for him. Any questions, Jess? So I was wondering because you know I wasn't totally familiar with it, what happened, especially particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, which he's referencing here, right before this. And uh, and it's it's kind of horrifying, really. Um, the, so the part the anointing of Bethany begins on the sixth, um, sixth, uh, you know, line of the gospel of the uh, of the twenty sixth chapter. The the very end of the twenty fifth chapter of Saint Matthew's gospel is the you know. Um, the last judgment and the like, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and care for you and reach out to you? So it's like this whole teaching of compassion and, and love. And then <laughs> right before the anointing of Bethany, it says, when Jesus finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that in two days time, it will be Passover and the son of man will be handed over to you. I mean, it's not like in the future or one day or anything. In two days, I'm going to die in this horrible way. And he's surrounded by the people who are like his best friends, you know, who the next day he's going to institute the Eucharist with. Like his, you know, his entire earthly support system is there. You would think that the reaction would be to be full of distress and sorrow and trying to do like everything you could to shower this person you love with like care and affection. And then this woman comes in and it doesn't even just say Judas. It says, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. He just told them he's going to die in two days. One person reaches out to him with this act of love and compassion, and they're all indignant about it like you just at that moment you feel like wow you really did just open the door for satan because there's no other reason that everyone who's supposed to love you unless you were willing and and intending to feel the full sorrow of total abandonment and disinterest like yeah and i think it's easy for us all the you know two thousand years later at least to think about it it's not as though it changes our behavior so much, but uh, you know, again, their their minds moved with a heavy tread, and their faith, you know, wasn't such that it could enter into that mystery. You know, the thought was that the Messiah would come with power, and I think that's why I wanted to frame 
Newman's reflection in terms of this understanding that Ackland lays out of an omnivulnerable God, because I think you know, so many of them were laboring under this idea that the Messiah was going to be this earthly ruler, that he was going to come with power, that he was going to overcome their oppressors. And that's why on the road, they began talking amongst themselves, who's going to be the greatest or uh, they, the mother of James and John, you know, ask, you know, if they could sit one at his right and one at his left. So they're thinking in this very worldly way. And so even though he's repeating to them over and over again, we're going to Jerusalem where I will be arrested and put to death. It's like it goes in one ear and out the other. And whether it was the, the incapacity because of a lack of faith or just a resistance to the, the horror of the idea. In fact, it's curious that the only one who finally gets it when they get close is Thomas, who's often called the doubter because he wants to place his hand in Jesus' open wound. But Thomas says, let us go to die with him. So he finally gets it and understands that if they go to Jerusalem, there are going to be those who are waiting for him and who have been plotting against him all the time and that he will likely be put to death and all of us with him. So at least in that moment, Thomas had a kind of courage. Eventually, like the rest, he would abandon the Lord. But part of the struggle is what I was saying is that, you know, often our view of God is of being all powerful. This idea of immersing ourselves in faith to the into the mystery of the cross, of a, of a, a God that pour, pour, pulls himself pour, pours himself out, becomes vulnerable in this absolute way, is the, the mystery that's hard for us to embrace. And it was hard for them as well. They couldn't imagine after seeing all the things that they did, you know, his multiplying the, the, the loaves and the fish for 5,000 multiple times, his raising people from the dead, you know, healing lepers, you know, that he had this extraordinary power that was greater than, than Moses, was greater than all the prophets. They thought for sure that he was going to use this power, you know, in a worldly way to bring about a worldly kingdom. That in, in some ways, this is even why he becomes a threat to others, you know, that if he could multiply bread in this way and feed all these people, he could raise up an army. And yeah, it is hard for us to enter into what fear would have been, you know, driving them at this point. But also, as you said, the action of the evil one who's waiting for this moment. One of our other groups, we talk about how the evil one and his assistants wait and lounge around watching for this moment uh, for, you know, to trip us up. And uh, similarly here, you know, when the moment comes, it's seized upon, you know, immediately there's this division that arises among them and then all the rest flows from that. And so it's not like we look back at that in a condescending way, you know, those foolish and faithless apostles. When in reality, we would have likely done the same thing. It is, yeah, that's right. And that's a good point that we often will criticize in others the things that we struggle with the most in, in our lives. And so Judas uh, being greedy and even to the point of stealing money uh, from 
you know, the, their own holdings, uh, accusing this woman of, of waste. And as if, as if he's concerned for the poor, when in reality he was concerned for himself. And, you know, I, I think there is a kind of hard spot, blind spot that develops within us to our own faults and failures, unless there is a kind of spirit of humility. That humility is, a, is what allows us to look at things truthfully, to see the truth about ourselves. And when it is lacking, you know, and to, uh, to this point, you know, we see him judging and rebuking Christ, his master. We see the depth of that pride. He's blind to what is coming upon Christ. He's blind to the generosity of this woman, but he's also blind to the very thing that he's guilty of while he's re rebuking, while he's rebuking her. And it is the sad thing, you know, part of what I mentioned in the preparatory remarks is that it's those who are closest to Christ that betray him the most. And, you know, I think if we look in our own day and we think about the, the abuse scandal that, you know, those who are to represent Christ, those who are to care for the vulnerable, to guard and protect them became the predators. And you think about the, the level of darkness that had to enter in not only into their lives, but the church as a whole or a kind of culture that maybe gave rise even to a kind of networking or trafficking that took place in certain circumstances uh, is horrendous. And in some of these, you know, some it's interesting in some cases that the very individuals that are engaged in it often became those who preached against it in this very forceful way while engaging in the very thing that they're, they're criticizing. That's right, obedient love, okay. obedient love. And this was the path that he was set upon. And uh, this is what they could not, could not grasp. And I think in our own, own day, it's a hard thing too. We, we can be very willful, even in our practice of our religion, religiosity. And where it becomes not so much our listening to Christ and trying to be faithful to his will or what he's revealed to us, but we can be willful in our, our practice of the faith to give ourselves a, a sense of religiosity. In this sense, Phariseeism is very much alive within the life of the church. The very thing that Christ came to put away and rather and then to draw us into the very life of the Trinity, we recreate even within Christianity itself. Clericalism arises out of it. You know, and, you know, all this sense of vying for, for power, for authority, you know, it's all meaning, meaningless. And yet, and yet we cling to it. What's that? Holy indifference. Right. Okay. Ren, did you have another comment? Um, I was just thinking um, there was something you had just said. I can't remember now, but it had just made me think of like part of the tragedy of the fallen world is that like I'm thinking about the apostles and I'm thinking about you know Christians and and the um uh you know Father Neron posted on his social media the other day that uh that really beautiful reflection on 
the the one who has received baptism and confirmation will you know they will be judged by like what they have thrown away in addition to like they will be judged differently than those who have not received because one who's been drawn so close and still rejected the Lord is different than one who hasn't received those sacraments and the benefit of that and there's just so much and then thinking about Christians and the betrayal almost inevitable in receiving communion and and kind of thinking that like with human relationships that's the same thing like you're just you're never gonna be as hurt by someone you don't love as you will be by someone you love. like love betrayed love hurt love rejected will always be more painful and it will it will uh not be magnified because of the very presence of love and the, of a history and a relationship and affection but that the smaller things become bigger things and the big things become life records you know like and um and that that's just part like it, it's it's wonderful to imagine a world in which the fullness of love will only lead to fully but that's not this world um and uh and maybe there's something of compassion for the Lord there that like every communion is imperfect. Every communion will be an experience for him of offering a perfect and infinite love and having it either grabbed as if it's like just something that's sitting there so you might as well swipe it because it's there. It's free. Or uh, taken but like yeah it's this like thing that's good to have but whatever and like not actually seen for its value or even those who are the most reverent and the most loving simply can never return it to the extent that it's given and so like there's just I'm not sure I've ever really thought about like every giving of his body being continuation of the passion in that sense like it's always going to be a little painful right well i think that's we've mentioned before that this is actually a beautiful meditation on it that even despite the fact that we receive you know half-heartedly or in an unprepared way christ still gives himself to us and makes up for what is lacking uh, but, you know, I think we've mentioned before, St. John Chrysostom said that there, it's often good for us to go through a period in our life where there's this kind of fear and trembling that overtakes us at receiving Holy Communion, because then it sort of heightens our understanding of who and what it is that we are receiving. And, you know, I wouldn't want to artificially do that with anyone, but I think that comes through a growing faith that you, you see the magnitude of the love that you are receiving and through the Holy Eucharist. Well, we just finish up the meditation and we'll open it up for questions. Where did I leave off? Anybody can help me? Okay. What we know feebly about something to happen affects us far more vividly and very differently when it actually takes place. Our Lord had at length felt and suffered to feel the cruelty of the ingratitude of which he was the sport and victim. He had treated Judas as one of his most familiar friends. He had shown marks of closest intimacy. He had made him the purse keeper of himself and his followers. 
He had given him the power of working miracles. He had admitted him to the knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He had sent him out to preach and made him one of his own special representatives so that the master was judged by the conduct of his servant. A heathen, when smitten by a friend, said, At tu, Brute, what desolation is in the sense of ingratitude. God, who is met with ingratitude daily, cannot by his nature feel it. He took a human heart so that he might fill it in its fullness. And now, oh my God, though in heaven, do you not feel my ingratitude toward you? Probably the most beautiful line uh, of the meditation. You know, the question that we, we would put to God, you know, this heart that you've embraced by taking upon our humanity in order that you might feel uh, everything of our pain and sorrow and take it upon yourself in the most real and concrete way, does it cease to feel the ingratitude that we often throw back to him? So it's a powerful way to end the meditation. Again, not to put fear within our hearts, but again, to awaken us uh, to who and, who and what it is that we receive. And, you know, I think we struggle by putting this, our relationship with God in general on par with so many other things within our life that we hold to be of importance or of great value. And similarly with the Holy Eucharist, we will do that, that we will we'll treat it, our reception of it, and often in not much of a different way from what we would receive anything else that somebody gave us or one of the brownies on the table here. Sometimes people would receive that with greater delight than they would receive the most Holy Eucharist. They are pretty good brownies, and though I have to say, but, uh, but you get the idea that there, there is a kind of insensitivity that we, we can foster that in one of our other groups, we were talking about faith as being something that God infuses into us. And that without faith, man ceases to be man. That God has created us in his image and likeness for himself. And he also infuses within us the very virtue that is needed in order to see him and to understand him and comprehend that love. But it's our formation and our entering into it uh, that that applies this education to it. There's an application of that reality that allows it to grow and develop. And so there's no stagnant position in the Christian faith. We are either growing in this love or it is diminishing our capacity to understand it, to embrace it, to live it diminishes. And uh, I love that little phrase from St. Isaac that uh, in this world, there is no Sabbath day in regards to the spiritual battle, that there's rest from our worldly labors, but there's no rest from God and there's no rest from loving and no rest from praying as if we put those things on the same level. One is the source of our life, our experience of love and that we should be doing, seeking to do always and there's no letting off of the spiritual battle from anything that could pull us away from that love. And yet we will so often take a spiritual vacation from Christ. Right? So 
Well, that's why I mentioned, listen to Luke's version of it for tomorrow at tomorrow's mass. He makes it even more pointed uh, and in two ways. Uh, he, he moves it from being eight Beatitudes to four, and then he adds four woes. And he removes it from being something impersonal. In Matthews, it says, blessed are they who are blessed are those who are poor. Whereas Luke's version says, you know, blessed are you or woe are you. Woe to you who do this. It's ever so personal. So Luke puts a little edge on it and he adds the woes precisely to, to drive home the provocative challenge of the Beatitudes. That this isn't the way that the world views things. In fact, it turns the world on its head. And I think everything that we've been talking about tonight is true as well in, in the way that we look at the cross and the nature of the love there that we see. It turns our view uh, of God, of love, of what it means to be a human being on its head. And we have to be willing to allow that to take place in faith, uh, both, both that we might be converted and changed by, but that we also might come to experience the sweetness and the joy of it, of entering into that love and, and knowing it, knowing without a doubt that we are loved, that this is how much God is willing to do for us and has done for us. That becomes our greatest source of joy and comfort within this world. And in the end, it's what frees us from all anxiety. If we, we believe that God is willing to turn the world upside down to save us, that he's willing you know, to take upon our poverty as human beings to do that, then what, what do we have to be fearful about? You know, the response would be similar to the, the disciples in the boat when the waves were crashing over the side of it. You know, Foolish men, why, why, do you, why do you lack faith? They have the, he who is life with them in the boat and they're worried about the waves. In the one boat, in the one boat trip, they're, they're worried about, they're talking about, in the back of the boat, they're talking about bread. And he said, I just fed 5,000 people and you're worried about having bread for dinner. <laughs> yeah, Paul came to experience in a very concrete way. The power of the cross, but also the love that was made manifest in it. So he experienced it in his body, uh, but he also experienced the love and the grace that came in the midst of the embrace of it. So he becomes sort of the perfect example for us in terms of someone who's embraced New what Newman writes about here. Okay. So that brings us to 30. Why don't we close there? And then uh, there are snacks and coffee for those who can stay for a little bit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. You know, Lent's coming up, was about three weeks. So this would be a very good book for meditation, The Passion of the Lamb. You'd spend the whole flying planet.
Thank you all who joined us via Zoom. Have a great night, everybody.